Welcome to The Pimp Factory, the Adam Smith Institute's new podcast. My name is Matthew Lesh and I'm the Head of Research at the ASI. This week, I'm joined by our Head of Programs, Daniel Pryor, as well as Stephen Bush, the Political Editor at The New Statesman. Today, we'll be discussing the Hong Kong National Security Law and the UK's citizenship offer, the government's latest COVID economic package, and homelessness and rough sleeping. A new national security law has come into effect in Hong Kong that criminalises inciting succession, subversion, terrorism and collusion with external forces. It effectively outlaws Hong Kong's pro-democracy and pro-independence movement. But in the weeks since it came into introduction, we've already started to see some fight back in amongst the people of Hong Kong. Uh, Daniel, what, what have we seen so far? So today on the recording of this podcast, that's Monday the 6th of July, we've actually seen the first prosecution in Hong Kong under the new law. And also about an hour ago uh, at the time of recording, Carrie Lam's invoked these new powers that allow police to enter premises without a warrant, uh, freeze assets, intercept communications, and also request that ISPs remove certain wrong think from the internet. But what we've seen in terms of fight back is that Hong Kongers are finding new and creative ways to express their dissent. Uh, we've seen things like blank post-it notes or post-it notes with Mao quotes written on them sarcastically, <laughs> re- replacing pro-democracy posters in some areas. But This is all in the wake of pro-democracy books being removed from libraries. We've had the authorities in Hong Kong ordering schools and nurseries to start teaching their students the new security law, which I find particularly disturbing. And also people being arrested for displaying pro-independence flags, as well as US and UK flags as well. Yeah, so I saw some posting from the Hong Kong police account that showed one person who was arrested after they were carrying a flag that said, Hong Kong independence, but then in little text you could see if he's in it said no to Hong Kong independence. So I don't know if that, that gets away with it. Um, Stephen, are you quite pessimistic about the chances of the Hong Kong people being able to overcome this in any meaningful way? Are we going to see the, the end of um, organised political opposition in Hong Kong because everyone's going to be arrested and, and put to jail for decades? Or do you think that we're going to see an ongoing situation where it's going to be quite hard from China? Um. I think it's both in that I'm long term pessimistic about it, right? In the the thing that is kind of heartening from a, you know, kind of strength of the human spirit perspective is in the same way that on the mainland people have used, you know, images of, of Winnie the Pooh to satirize uh Xi, you you see people kind of finding ways to go, well look, I'm not breaking any laws. You can't possibly say putting up a blank post it note. Um is is breaking breaking any laws but one the 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 security law in its current form is is designed to give the apparatus of the state the ability to um find ridiculous ways to accuse people of terrorism or collusion when you know they have you know they have they have done nothing that could be reasonably described as either of those things in any case so i think um the hope that um the chinese government will go Oh well, we tried, uh, but that was too difficult. Is, is I think a, is is not going to happen. Uh, so they 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 will kind of come back with um, you know, sort of yet more draconian measures. The thing I am optimistic about, though, is the um, uh, without wishing to kind of uh, skip ahead on the other aspects we might want to talk about, but is you know the the unified response uh, by the the nations of the five eyes. Um, it would be positive if 
um, yeah, without wishing to kind of refight the Brexit argument, yeah, this is one of the negatives of the fact that we are not uh, in the EU, is that we are uh, one of the continent's two military security powers, but we are no longer in any of the conversations about how um, the EU can act unilaterally, despite the fact we do kind of still essentially have a, a, a kind of entirely intermeshed and in some ways very positive security alliance. Have you not seen, though, Stephen, the EU goes a little bit softer on China and Hong Kong, potentially led by Germany and their economic relationship with China? That do, do you, yeah. Are you of the view that if the UK was still in, that um, the EU might be pushing harder on China? Is that is that the yeah? I, I, I think one of the things, yeah, I, I think that um, my long term, because you know, I think one of the things that uh, I mean, there were so many kind of sort of shared fix, fictions than both. Remainers and lever, Leavers uh, in 2016 kind of colluded on. But one of the kind of the problems is that the EU is still exists. It's not going anywhere. And, and I think it does increase the dominance of uh, of Germany, who are, as you say, a country with an, you know, kind of, we rightly have criticised, we rightly criticised David Cameron for uh, statements on the golden era of UK-Sino relations that have not aged well. But in many ways, because Germany, Sino-German relations have been very successful, we have a problem where the economic power of the EU is inclined to be weak on this issue, and 50% of the defence powers of the continent aren't in the bloc. Uh, and I, th- I do think the EU will will become more, uh, more dovish on this issue as a result of that. It's potentially. There was that interesting case that happened uh, potentially last month where an, a joint EU... Um, I think it was an opinion piece for the China Daily was censored, and then the official who allowed it to be censored was um, censured back back in the EU. So potentially the Chinese government could annoy them at the same time. I don't think there's anything necessarily guaranteed that they'll succumb to China's every every demand. Though is there? No, I think you know. Yeah, this is you know this is one of the the benefit. This is kind of one of the things people always forget about. Um, say the EU UK trade deal, which will of course be the first of many, right? Is it's not just about what we accomplished in terms of frictionless trade between the UK and the EU, just as Australia's um, trade negotiations aren't just about what they establish in terms of trade negotiations, um, but stronger bilateral relationships between the UK post Brexit and the EU strengthen our China policy, and. Yeah. Australia EU trade deal, uh, as opposed to the no trade deal they have now, will strengthen because you know one of the one of the things that was I think quite embarrassing and shameful was when uh, the Australian government was quite rightly going, hmm, the Chinese government seemed not to have been very honest with anyone about um, transmissibility, and the Chinese government was being incredibly uh, belligerent about it. Was the number of governments, including our own, who were kind of going, uh, is there some noise happening over there? I haven't noticed. So the the there are yeah I'm not someone who thinks that um you you kind of can't be influential upon the security policy of the EU when you're outside of it. You can be influential in the EU when you're outside of it if you're outside of it and you're thousands of miles away in the case of Australia and Canada or if you're right next door in the case of the United Kingdom. But it is um it's a lever that we've kind of grown used to being able to pull without thinking about in our foreign policy that we probably do need to work out how we want to try and pull it still. Yeah. Yeah, and I suspect a lot of the the silence at the time 
when Australia was calling for harsher moves against China and independent investigation, it was ultimately successful, was the fact that the UK had a huge shortages of PPE at the time. That speaks to the manufacturing issue. Um, but I, I think you just want to move on to the UK's um, a quite strong initial response to this that you were hinting at earlier, which is this offer to the 3 million BNO British um, national overseas passport holders in Hong Kong that they will have a, a path to citizenship. And in fact, I thought this was much more than I was first expecting. I thought they wouldn't get one or two years, but in fact, they're going to have an ability to get a five-year visa for the UK, which is after you've been in the UK on this visa for five years, you'll be able to uh, get a citizenship, uh, right to remain and then citizenship. Um, Daniel, how do you think this fits into a kind of a broader narrative about asylum in the UK? This is pretty unique, isn't it? Yeah, so unique is definitely the right word to use here. Obviously, I think what the government's done here is fantastic and deserves our praise, but, and there is... But it seems like the exception in terms of our broader system for political asylum rather than the rule. And that makes sense to a certain extent, giving uh, uh, historic links to Hong Kong. But there's a worry here that if we just focus on Hong Kong, we forget that actually there are many other countries around the world also facing authoritarian and totalitarian regimes that we're not offering uh, this level of aid to. And we're certainly not offering the right to work when it comes to people who apply for asylum and political asylum from these countries. It's part of the reason that, as you know, Matt, we at the ASI are big fans of the Lift the Ban campaign, Mm. which aims to make it easier for those seeking asylum to find work in the UK and contribute both in economic and social terms, as well as integrate more effectively. Uh, In terms of the international situation here, the US is actually way ahead of us at the moment, despite the narrative um, on immigration over there certainly getting more restrictionist. You've seen a six-month wait period in the US when it comes to allowing asylum seekers to work, whereas over here it's currently 12 months. Now Trump's looking to change that to bring the US in line with UK standards of uh, asylum and immigration policy, which kind of says it all to me at least. But certainly there's a significant concern that Hong Kong should not be the exception here. It's fantastic we're doing this. Uh, I'd like to see it extended even more if possible. Obviously, what we've done is great already. But the problem with the current offer to Hong Kongers is that the main people involved in the protest generation, of course, over there are young people. And those born after 97 are not subject to uh, BNO status, which means they're not going to be the ones that are able to take advantage of this. And I mean, there's also the question of, how many people are actually going to to take advantage of this and whether it's mainly a symbolic gesture or whether it is in fact something that is going to have a significant impact in terms of immigration flows to the UK. I think that there is going to be a, a significant amount of people that will be interested in this. I don't think that it's just symbolism, but we have to remember that there are other countries close by as well that could ideally come up with similar offers and that may be more attractive to Hong Kongers. But I'm glad that the UK is leading the way on this. Yeah, I think it's an important point that the government would probably stress. And the reason why there is this unique visa is because of the traditional Sino-British treaty that the government has claimed has been broken and therefore that the UK has a special duty to Hong Kongers. There's probably also a lot of politics along here, Stephen, isn't there? There's probably more than anything else. This is a symbolic move about um, the UK changing its approach to China. You mentioned earlier the the Osborne Gordon relationship here. That definitely seems to be over, um, and it seems to be over in a very bipartisan way. We've seen Lisa Nandy very much being in support 
of of the moves and, and taking a harsher tone to China than you you would have even necessarily expected at first from from the Labour Party. Um, what do you think this says more broadly about the UK's relationship with China, Stephen? Um, I think. I mean, to be honest, I I think that's actually a pretty comprehensive analysis of where we are in the the kind of golden era relationship was was always an elite project, right? Um, the nature of a large chunk of our uh, diaspora communities here is that there is there's not yeah you know, when you go to a kind of um, yeah a kind of uh, British Chinese ginger group organisation in any of the major parties, you are fairly unlikely to hear lots of arguments about why we should have a stronger relationship with the Chinese government and quite likely to hear arguments about political prisoners, religious freedom. Um, so the the inner life of the party grassroots, I think, was always going to move in this direction. Um, and I think as a kind of national issue, the idea that we should have closer relationships with China, uh, a country which is not a democracy, um, I think was always going to struggle to maintain much popular support. The the important and I think significant shift is that as an elite project, I just don't see how it can come back um, for some time because the argument for it has been essentially discredited. Uh, it has not. We have not had a greater degree of transparency, better treatment of, of political um, prisoners, better behaviour in its neighbours. The interesting thing, though, is, is of course, because China is a, uh, a, a is a superpower, is there is no such thing anymore as a country having a China policy. Its development policy is partly a China policy. Its trade policy is partly a China policy. And the thing I think is very interesting is the the British government does seem to kind of be pulling all of its china specific levers but it doesn't it hasn't yet penetrated through to any way that we might rethink say development spending i thought it was very interesting when boris johnson talked about uh british development priorities and he contrasted uh countries which are at risk uh of russian interference where we spend a fairly small amount of money with uh countries in sub-saharan africa where we spend a great deal and the phrase phrase debt diplomacy did not in any way intrude into this speech. And I think that to me is the interesting question is to what extent does this, I think, welcome change of approach and change of perspective on China? Um, to what extent is that limited to having a more sensible approach on Huawei, uh, a more sensible approach on nuclear power, something I'm hugely pro, but do not think that we should be uh, outsourcing to a state which might uh, might become hostile um, uh, in the future, um, does it is it limited to that, or does it involve a kind of further and wider reimagining of how we approach defence policy, development policy, and trade policy in general? I think COVID more than anything else has shown the danger of being a, of China's totalitarian regime because it, it shows that something that can be covered up in a place where there isn't free speech, where dissidents are censored can have a very real meaningful impact on the rest of the world. And it, it kind of pushes you more towards the view that every country's actions, in some ways, if they're going to have a huge impact on everyone else um, in such a negative and, and obvious way, 
need to be in some way accountable. I think that's very hard within the international system where we do consider sovereignty to be an important value, but we also consider human rights to be an important value. And that contradiction there, as well as the need for trade and rebooting the economy. When it comes to trade, my, my personal view is a little bit I'm less sympathetic to those who might want to be bullshit on China. I think we get we get a lot of benefits out of trading with China. They get a lot of benefits to their people in terms of lifting people out of poverty. But Daniel, how, how do you think we, we can balance these various priorities when it comes to development or trade and, and whatever else with, with China, as well as our ongoing human rights and civil liberties concerns and the, just what kind of relationship we should have with someone who doesn't share our values? I think what you mentioned on trade there is really important. The concern that I have that I think you share is us going too far down the restrictionist route on trade and introducing sweeping economic sanctions of some form or another. And I've always been very sceptical of the effectiveness of sanctions on achieving whatever aim in terms of economic sanctions, the academic literature that goes over the many, many times that the US and the UK and uh, other countries have tried to impose sanctions to get a desired foreign policy outcome. Uh, they simply don't work the majority of the time. If we are to go down that road, then I think it's important we make sure any sanctions are, are targeted and targeted as kind of minutely as possible, maybe even at the individual level, perhaps, rather than ones that would impoverish and, and make lives worse for the average Chinese citizen, basically. Stephen, where are you at? What's your view of where, where the government should move next? Is it should be a focus on Huawei and, and strategic industries and ensuring that China doesn't have an involvement in those in the UK? Um, are you looking for something more extreme when it comes to supply chains more broadly, about disconnecting China from the world, about sanctions? What, what do you think would be a, a reasonable China policy? Since it seems like the, the government's decided to change their China policy, but I, I don't think they've really verbalized what their new approach is beyond some strategic leaks to certain journalists or whatever at certain points. We, we don't actually really know yet what, what the government wants out of their relationship with China. See, I think there are three aspects to me of, of what a sort of proper China pivot would look like. Like you, I'm concerned about the kind of um, just have a huge trade wall uh, approach because I broadly don't think that works for a country of the economic size and clout of China. I think that it um, impoverish, will impoverish a lot of uh, ordinary people in, in China and in the rest of the world. Um but there are kind. There's the security aspect, and it's been covered very well. So I don't think I need to to go over that. There's the development aspect, where I think then the the sign the sign and then uh, the British government and indeed governments in the West have properly understood the China challenge. Is there's almost an attitude sometimes when you talk to sort of some foreign policy types in the UK. And they kind of go, oh, you know, it's brilliant because this is a, a way that we, yeah, this is this is a bit of development policy we can retreat from. Um, but, you know, the, the central point of many, uh, yeah, Belt and Road initiatives is to build an empire of debt. Um, and I think then a sign that our development priorities reflect that it is not in our interest, it's not in the interests of, uh, of the developing world, and it and it, it is ultimately in no one's interest for uh, those countries to become dependent on the incredibly conditional largesse of of the Chinese state. So that would be kind of prong two, and prong three is food security. Now, I don't think it's possible, desirable, or necessary uh, for a country to be um, 
solely self-sufficient in food i don't i think in terms of you know the concerns of biodiversity climate change i don't think those are things that you necessarily need to meet through to that lens but the the kind of the very very old cause of this pandemic is the is the development of new diseases um in agribusiness and then people not being clear or transparent about what's happened um that is part of the story in the handling of, of, of BSE here in, in the 90s, and that is the story of the novel coronavirus. That was also partially the story of, of the emergence of swine flu. The difference in the latter two, ca- in the case of BSE and swine flu, is although I don't think anyone would um, you know be handing out any prizes for the British government's handling of BSE initially, civic society, biz- some businesses, some individuals, the various safeguards and being in a democratic society gives you, did mean that, uh, other countries were effectively locking down, admittedly locking down only to, to beef goods, but they were locking down to the United Kingdom very early on, which is why BSE is and remains not wholly, but largely a British only. And I do mean British only, because it isn't even a problem for, for Northern Ireland, a British only problem. And although swine flu thankfully turned out to be a damp squib, one of the reasons why um, the kind of we had the fortunate wasting of money than a bunch of governments including our own spent money on on anti-flu stockpiles they didn't need with swine flu is because although uh, there was not all of the transparency one would have wished you had transparency from uh, the institutions of civic society which eventually meant that you had uh, awareness from central government about what was going wrong in the case of swine flu and i think the one thing this has shown is that because we fundamentally we know that uh, agri-food is, and I think pretty much always will be, um, the kind of major known zone of risk for novel pandemics. If you have an, if you have the same kind of open trading relationship with a country that is not a democracy and does not have those kind of civic society whistleblowing functions, because I think it's inevitable and understandable actually, right? Then you're always going to have an incentive on the part of at least one of businesses or government to not be straight about sicknesses and problems in their supply chain, right? That is just the nature of, of human affairs. But if you if you have a close trading relationship on food with countries which do not have that civic society backup of someone who will go, hang on, the cow is sick, hang on, there's problems in this wet market, hang on, the pigs are getting ill, um, you're just in a very dangerous position. And so I think those are the three things that I think uh, need to sh- we need to show are changing in our kind of China pivot. Last week, Boris Johnson gave his build, build, build speech in which he declared support for an FDR-style New Deal, while this week we await a statement from Chancellor Rishi Sunak about the next stages of the government's economic response to COVID. Um, Daniel, the mood music from Boris is very much big state, I'm here to intervene, New Deal style, we need a new relationship. But when we dive down into details, um, the, the actual announcement for Boris was actually pretty light on government intervention. Uh, and it was mostly about bringing forward about $5 billion in, in major project infrastructure spending. Perhaps so the, the biggest part of the speech and, and the subsequent announcements was the stuff about planning reform, about a deregulatory red tape cutting approach. Yeah, so $5 billion of extra infrastructure spending is, is certainly not what you'd call New Deal levels of uh, expansion in government spending. I think he's been criticised from the left for that specific reason. But on this question of reforming our planning system, it does seem like 
there's some really good stuff that is coming in the woodwork. It's something that the ASI and many others, including yourself, Stephen, they've been wanting for a very long time. Now, we haven't got the specific details yet. We should get them in a policy paper later this month with changes due to be implemented in September. But among the announcements we've had include focusing on trying to expand the types of commercial buildings that can be deferred uh, converted into residential use without any planning permission. So that's the permitted development right stuff. And also this idea of fast tracking approval for people who own property to build up subject to the approval of their neighbours. And this is something that sounds very similar to the better streets idea that ourselves and groups like London Yimby have been proposing, which is allowing streets to vote on giving themselves development rights to add extra stories. So we've seen a few victories from the the ASI cause in terms of the national planning framework already. And it looks like we're hopefully due to see a few more. Yeah, and I think planning reform is very much a holy grail of British politics. Uh, it's quite politically difficult for all the reasons we know that if you see a large new development near you, your instinct is to oppose it because it could cause more busyness. It could mean more pressure on public services and you don't necessarily know you're going to get that investment. Uh, but at the same time, if we're going to solve the housing crisis, just the amount of money people are paying for housing, we've got to do something about the, the fact that we're not building enough homes where people want to live. But also in terms of addressing productivity issues, if people can live closer to where they're most productive, you, you're going to get a huge natural boost. Right now, it's a huge disincentive to move to London or move to Manchester where you might be able to get a higher paying job because you just lose all that extra income more or less on paying more for, for housing. Uh, but Stephen, you had a kind of broader critique of Boris's speech. Yeah, so, you know, to avoid being overly churlish, I, I, you know, I'm cautiously optimistic about this stuff on planning. My overarching critique on it was I just thought that it was inc- it was incoherent and it was just a very, I don't mean a bad speech in terms of the delivery. I mean a bad speech in that when I kind of went to write about it and therefore was looking at the transcript, I suddenly went, wait a second. And I kind of think, yeah, I always think, that the, you know, the, the value of a speech is twofold. Firstly, it it provides direction to the civil service. Secondly, it provides direction to civic society, to lobbyists, to think tanks, to organisations who are kind of, you know, connected to or, or in some in some way interact with the state about kind of what a... So, I mean, let's, let's take a, a, a political philosophy, and I think it's fair to say that everyone on this podcast, for different and in some cases overlapping reasons, did not agree with Mayism. It was very clear from a Theresa May speech what a Mayite policy was, which meant you understood that you were either proposing policies that were di- that were kind of, well, look, here's a way you can do something Mayite, or you were going, look, here's why this is completely flawed from the um, flawed from the beginning. And this is a speech in which it is impossible to answer, you know, kind of, I would argue, quite important questions like, does Boris Johnson think that the economic policies of the last 10 years have been good or bad? Um, what does levelling up mean in practice? Um, what are the kind of... Because, yeah, the the, opti- the optimistic read on the planning policy and the and the kind of uncaveated... Yeah, the thing which is brilliant without caveat, which is changing the ridiculous situation where you kind of have... Where it's so hard to get generalised planning permission that means, you know... And we we all see this in our local areas, right? Where you know the same same venue, which has proved hundreds of times it cannot support another cafe, keeps having to host other cafes because that's the only thing it can really be used for. 
um, without kind of reopening the kind of the the issue of its planning permission for an architecture. So that stuff is 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 you know is 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 just is just great, and there's sort of no more to be said about it. My concern about the incoherence of the speech is it reveals that when you get to the difficult stuff, I then broadly when you say that you're going to tackle planning permission. Um, it's fine up until the point then backbench MPs start going, well, yeah, that's fine, but not in, to use an example, just because it's top of mind, because uh, the MP in question was campaigning against building on a not particularly pleasant field today, uh, Paul Holmes in Eastley, do you then immediately go, oh, actually, we didn't really mean it. And my concern about the kind of lack of coherence in the speech is that what it reveals isn't when the difficulties around planning reform emerge, the government will go, oh, well, we've, we've done the stuff about... Um, about about usage and that's and that would still be a, a huge step forward in terms of changes that other governments haven't made but in some ways one of the problems with the fact it's the holy grail of, of british politics is it's quite easy for governments to have done something which is transformative in terms of what has gone before pat themselves on the back and feel better about retreating because they got closer to to, to it than anyone else even though they haven't actually got anywhere near to it yeah i i'd agree with you there i think that the Policies that have been announced so far, definitely welcome, definitely a big improvement on the current system that we have. But I wouldn't frame them as a radical overhaul of the planning system. They are good tinkering measures, but they are tinkering. And when it comes to the the really difficult stuff, the things that's hard to accomplish politically, I am concerned that actually there, there won't be enough follow through here. When it comes to questions like the Green Belt, for example, will revert to the old oh, brownfield land is absolutely fine sort of argument. And we won't look at the overall planning system and how it's designed. Yeah, and I don't think the government's going to quite frankly do anything about the green belt. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's, it's seen as, as too much of a, a political dynamite to even touch that topic. But I, I think Stephen's right in terms of the, the broader critique of this government is that they seem to have what is a communication strategy and, and very rarely does that link to any particularly consistent, meaningful policy direction, and it being pulled in a whole bunch of different directions. So this whole levelling up agenda, regional inequality has been an issue. It's been talked about for 50 years, 100 years. I mean, it's, this is not uh, something that's that's new and unique. And the reason why you have regional inequality is because you have, um, you know, there's a, there's a basic economic fact that you have high productivity sectors in cities like London or like Manchester that are going to be able to sell their services to the world and you know, Australia can be able to replicate that everywhere in the country. And to say you can, I, I, as much as you might talk about wanting to invest in some infrastructure, it's not clear to me that while that's nice, that's going to actually have a huge impact and it's going to achieve the levelling up they want. So I think they're going to struggle down that. And then on the other hand, if you combine Boris's speech with uh, Michael Gove's speech, which happened a few days earlier on that weekend, it was this kind of good but ironically technocratic. So on the one hand, Gove was making an argument that policy elites have become too disconnected from people they're supposed to serve and we need to shuffle the decks a little bit and move departments around the country and uh, we need to devolve parts of government. I'm all in favour of devolution and decentralisation. I think the UK state um, suffers from its heavy centralisation. We saw that many times during this crisis. But it, it just seems like, well, Gove's got this kind of uh, reform of governance and improving the way government delivers and that seems like a, a dominant coming strategy. And then uh, in terms of policy thing. On the other hand, you have Boris with this kind of big infrastructure thing and levelling up and it, it seems he's jumping around and then Boris has to declare that he's in fact not a communist even though he wants some more spending. Um, and then you compare that to a Boris of a year ago 
who was talking about how we need to celebrate the wealth creators and the capitalists and the business sector. Um, it, 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 I mean, I, for a long time, tried to make an argument that perhaps Boris did have some consistent underlying principles. But the more time gets on, I think it's very hard to make that case. And therefore, the government will be sometimes pushed in the right direction, sometimes do the, the right thing uh, in policy terms or consistently philosophically conservative terms. And other times, they'll just do things they think are popular for the, the sake of doing it. Or they'll do things about this agenda that they're trying to push about leveling up, even though, quite frankly, I don't think they have any clue how they're going to do that in practice. I think that's because it's almost impossible to do in practice. Um, I just think it's it's just going to end up being very confused from this government over the coming years. And then there'll be events which will push them off course, like COVID, like whatever else we don't know about is going to come next. And and for all that, I'm not sure we're going to look back in four years' time or four and a half years' time and, and really know what this government has achieved in any meaningful sense. Yeah, I, I also try to withhold my judgment for as long as possible and perhaps be naively optimistic that there would be a consistent policy thread of, of something resembling classical liberalism or, you know, just even around that sort of area of political philosophy. But it does seem like the campaigning government is here to stay and the kind of coherent policy government is very much not forthcoming. And I'm tempted almost to say I'm going to look back in the David Cameron era as maybe you're more to the left or disagree with it, but there was a lot going on. Uh, there was an effort to, to cut government spending, uh, which some would call austerity, some would call quite um, dangerous, but there was something going on there. Um, you had a benefits reform, universal credit. I think we can talk about a little bit more about that in a second, but uh, that's some of the implications of that. You had schools reform and, and educational stuff with, with Gove. Um, where do you think this, this government's legacy is going to be? Like what was Stephen potentially, if, if you have any more insights than we have because I'm genuinely just quite lost at the moment. Yeah, my my underlying assumption is that we will look back on, um, you know, when, yeah, when, whenever this, whenever either the Conservative-led governments in 2010 come to a close or when Boris Johnson is replaced by another Conservative Prime Minister, um, you know, whenever either of those events happen, I think we will look back and we will compare this period in government to... David Cameron's first term, where he had a majority of similar size, albeit one with a coalition with a party of the centre and left, in which he did um, continue. Or yeah, I mean, I'm very much someone who thinks that the school reforms uh, were 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 kind of continuity and built on one before. But regardless of whether or not that's correct, they were a big and significant change in how schooling was provided in England. There was a a big and significant change in how uh, uh, welfare was provided. Uh, in, 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 in England and Wales. And there was a, um, a you know, a, a significant uh, programme of, of cuts, whatever, whatever one thinks about the wisdom of them, right? It was a, it was a very effective government from a centre-right perspective. And it, I kind of thought that, so although I'm not particularly surprised that the government we have now does kind of seem to essentially just be a kind of like we, we plugged plugged in a couple of focus groups, and this is the result. I thought that it might end up moving into a more effective place, partly out of a sense of embarrassment, partly because I thought that they might end up bringing in some more policy-focused people after the after the election had been secured. I do kind of suspect that we will we will look back at the two agenda, the agenda of Cameron and the agenda of Boris Johnson, and we will be astonished at the one of those which was the which was accomplished in coalition with another party compared to the, I suspect, very little of of substance um, that will end up being done by this government. Because, 
I'm afraid I've simply seen nothing to suggest that it has a kind of particular focus that will allow it to not be swept off by events or to do things which are genuinely controversial. Yeah, I think the government's quite obsessed with its popularity. I mean, what one, one exception to this is probably Brexit, of course, and potentially some trade deals. And that could be that in itself could be quite a and is quite a significant legacy for for good or for evil. Um, Boris got a deal that was willing to be passed through Parliament in the most difficult time, and they're going to majority get through Brexit, and and we'll be able to get. I'm a little bit more skeptical about the chances of getting a US trade deal, but I think the chances of an uh, Australia trade deal are very high. Chances of New Zealand trade deal are very high. Japan's pretty pretty high joining the TPP in terms of this kind of global Britain agenda, free trading, maybe not to the extent to which um, might be ideal if you also want free trade with the EU. That that is probably going to be a significant agenda, but um, I, I kind of yeah share that analysis, Stephen, with you that we're not really going to see potentially as as big reforms as the David Cameron era, and we're going to look back on that. And there's I think a lot of criticism from more conservative um, free marketeer types of David Cameron, and and potentially rightfully so because he intentionally framed himself as a one nation conservative in uh, even potentially a more meaningful way than than Boris, but. In terms of the actual legacy, in terms of policies, was was some quite meaningful reforms. So I think that COVID has played a pretty significant role here in ensuring that the government doesn't come up with a consistent policy narrative or a consistent message about what they're actually trying to do, and they're not going to go ahead with as many radical reforms as they might have always done. And the reason for that is that, whilst I can understand being especially concerned with popularity straight after the election, wanting to make sure that you cement your position in that way. In normal times, a government after a certain time in office during their first term would ideally want to start going down those routes of policy reform and start to shape the narrative around what they're going to do and what they're going to focus on. And right now, it seems that with COVID coming along, they've been distracted by that and again, being more concerned with keeping their popularity and making sure they're seen to be responding to the crisis in a way that is appropriate rather than focusing on trying to develop something that's a a consistent policy. So Dan, just a final issue we're going to talk about today is something you've you've been doing quite a bit of work on, which is the government's new focus on homelessness and potentially a silver lining of this pandemic is a really fundamental changing of of the way we try to help people who, who do end up rough sleeping. Um, do you want to run us through what's happened so far during this pandemic when it comes to homelessness? Sure. So this is something that I first wrote about back in May, and we've seen some changes in the government's approach since then. There was initially a, a ban on evictions, and that's recently been extended until late August, although they've extended it much later for businesses until the end of September. And recently we've had this quite significant £105 million of additional funding that's been released to support rough sleepers and those at risk of homelessness with interim housing. And this comes after the initial everyone in policy that was quite widely reported on with uh, homeless people and rough sleepers being housed in hotels uh, in places like Manchester and all across England and the rest of the UK. Uh, We've also seen a change in that now councils have permission to use these resources for EEA nationals who are at risk of homelessness or rough sleeping as well. So there's been some really positive reforms recently. And there was concerns in this area that actually a lot of the funding, the additional funding that was given to councils to deal with coronavirus was not earmarked specifically for 
homelessness reduction or for combating rough sleeping. And the worry there was that a lot of councils would not actually be able to or would not choose to spend that money on reducing rough sleeping. Uh, and now we've seen some more specific earmark funding. The issue that or the worries that I have uh, are in relation to those with no recourse to public funds. Initially, under the everyone in policy, what we had was people with no recourse to public funds being included in that remit. So they were able to uh, take advantage of these housing services. And now the government's advice has changed. There's been quite a good investigation that was released last week from the Bureau of Investigative Journalism that suggests that actually councils can decide at their own discretion whether or not to uh, to offer services to people with no recourse to public funds. And if the figures are anything to go by from the ONS and from various other uh, studies into specific cities like London, it seems like those with no recourse to public funds and the EEA nationals are amongst those at, at highest risk of homelessness, uh, especially during the pandemic. But in terms of broader reforms, I think there's a really important point to make here. We've had a real increase in homelessness during the, uh, the last decade, and it's only recently started to go down. Now, funding is obviously one part of the story here, but in terms of broader reforms we can make, I think something that's had a lot of success is the trials of the Housing First scheme that's been in various UK cities for quite some time now. And the, the basic idea of this is giving those who are, have high and complex needs, as the lingo goes, uh, stable accommodation without any strings attached. Uh, it's something that was developed in the 1990s back in the US, and there's plenty of trials already going on in the UK in places like Liverpool and Manchester. Uh, it's a pretty simple idea. If you can give people secure accommodation and you can give them trained support staff, it's easier to solve the other issues that may have led to their homelessness. So things like uh, substance misuse, for example, uh, so that's one aspect of it. And the evidence there suggests that it works really well. Uh, and my hope is that we'll expand those trials uh, and that we can really use that as a way to to change our approach to homelessness properly, um, both now and after the pandemic. The other thing that I think is important here and that is often overlooked is homelessness and its relation to the broader housing crisis. We often talk about homelessness and rough sleeping as though they're specific issues to do with, say, substance misuse or to do with uh, mental health issues. And that's often the case. But a significant driver of increasing rough sleeping is housing affordability. If you look in cities like the US, where there's been various uh, economic studies done showing there's quite a strong relationship between the level of rent prices, the level of house prices and uh, the amount of rough sleeping on streets. So there's a kind of broader point here, which is that housing reform, uh, housing policy reform and planning reform is also an important part of trying to reduce rough sleeping. Yeah, I think it's potentially some quite good news, although there is a risk with Housing First that it's something that might work on a small scale and the government uh, could successfully have some policy evaluation that says, you know, this would work quite broadly. Um, if it was tried to do it at a, a broader level, I think it would have to be done very carefully. Stephen, are you relatively optimistic about uh, housing first and this kind of new approach in the government that potentially maybe a lot of these people will never end up going back out onto the streets again, that per more permanent accommodation will be found. Yeah, I am quite optimistic about it because, yeah, yeah, I mean, bluntly, right, like, it, it's not like the, the so the right, 
so there are two things we talk about when we talk about the rise of, of, of homelessness in the last decade. There's the rise of kind of homelessness of a kind you don't see, which is people sleeping in their cars or sleeping on friends' couches, where people mostly do not end up on the streets because you end up rough sleeping if you have very weak social ties or you have some form of social breakdown or you have substance or uh, mental health issues. That isn't universally the case, but it is a large part of the difference between someone um, becoming homeless and becoming visibly homeless, as it were. Right. Um, but the the so one of the problems is something that we have failed to tackle for a long time, which is the British ha- which is the British housing crisis. The second are specific changes since 2010 uh, to do with things that weren't ring fenced, and so local councils cut them first because when your direct grant gets cut or your uh, tax receipts go down, you cut the things which most voters aren't going to see. Um, so I'm I'm quite optimistic that this isn't this pro- isn't really a problem where we are baffled as to what the solutions are. And I think that, um, uh, yeah, my concern actually with Housing First is, is is very similar to yours, which is that in all of the places it's been tried thus far, um, it's been done at a scale which allows you to have fairly intense interventions once people are in a home. My concern is what it rapidly becomes is his, you know, a former office block and is now a rabbit hutch and a council without much capacity has shunted a bunch of people in and now magic will happen and that will fix itself. And my concern is it ends up being like um, areas where, and obviously this is another thing we could fix with a very simple tweak of just letting people who are, apply, who are refugees work as quickly as possible. But you end up in the same situation we do with places which have large numbers of, of refugees and people seeking asylum which is you end up with these uh, places where there is no economic activity and everyone in, everyone around, including people in, in the acute vulnerability, have a pretty terrible time. Yeah, just to, to kind of come back on that, I think that the concerns that you both have are completely legitimate. When it comes to people who are, who are advocating housing first, the very important caveat is that it's very specifically targeted uh, at a smaller number of the homeless population who have these high and complex needs, and it's not seen as a a general solution that works for absolutely everyone. And that also, if it's to be done properly in in the countries where it has been tried, I mean, you look at Finland as the classic example, it has been paired with uh, quite well-run services related to mental health or substance misuse and and various things like that. Um, So the idea is to kind of integrate all these different aspects of what a council does when someone is homeless uh, and make sure that support workers are actually able to to deliver those things rather than just bunging someone off into a house and saying, all right, sort yourself out. Yeah. And of course you don't want to necessarily create an incentive for someone to become homeless because in a more extreme way, just to get a house um, or just to get it into accommodation straight away. So a target against people who are already effectively rough sleeping and, and have these issues rather than making it effectively a different track for, for social housing um, it is probably quite sensible. Um, one issue, though, Daniel, you've been talking about that's been concerning you on this front is this issue about um, the government reintroducing sa- welfare sanctions. So during the pandemic, uh, the government decided to pause the existing system in which um, your job centre, if you're unemployed, if you're at universal credit, uh, can sanction you by removing your payment if you fail to show up to, to meetings or fail to do certain activities that you've um, been asked to do by your job centre. 
Um, what do you think the link is in with this potential homelessness now? Is there a risk that we're going to send more people out onto the streets? Well, the worry is that if you do restart benefit uh, sanctions at this particular point, when you know we, we are still in the midst of the pandemic, it hasn't stopped yet. We still have issues relating to we're going to have issues relating to business closures, to uh, difficulties in finding jobs, then this is just going to be another added problem for those who are already on, say, universal credit or job seekers allowance, and that actually they're, they're going to end up in a much tougher situation. Uh, and that's part of the reason why the government suspended benefit sanctions for, for several months. But I think this kind of goes against what we've seen in terms of the government's narrative around homelessness. So COVID has undoubtedly brought this issue back to the forefront in a way that it wasn't before. So what Stephen was saying earlier about how the political incentives of this have been changed somewhat as homelessness has become more visible, it's related to the pandemic. People realise that, you know, this is a problem uh, over and above what it normally is, or that that's how they perceive it anyway. Uh, but this tends to, to kind of go against that a little bit. I think Stephen wrote a piece recently on benefit sanctions and the, the return of sanctions and the worries that that could bring and maybe he would be best placed to to talk about this in more detail. Yes, I guess my my concerns with the return of sanctions are twofold. Firstly, you know, I'm going to be yeah, incredibly civil honest about this. I have a very, very strong uh, liberal objection to them as a concept. I think um, if, you know, if, as your unemployment benefits ought to do, the things that they have broadly achieved are you're not going to become homeless and you're not going to starve, um, the average rational person understands that they are better off in that situation uh, finding work. And the things about universal credit which are positive is they make it significantly easier for people to do that without creating uh, cliff edges. And... Um, my objection to sanctions is that the group of people who do not understand that are mostly people who, who don't understand it because bluntly they can't for one reason or another. And we see this with the pattern of people who in practice do end up getting hit with sanctions. They are people with uh, chaotic lives, pre-existing uh, problems. And I basically generally take the view that most people will respond to um, liberal policy incentives and assume that people know what's good for them and will seek to have you know a disposable income so they are not just surviving and not starving but they can eat and enjoy things and buy exciting things and do things which are fun and go on holiday and all of the rest of it and that people who don't respond to that type of policy incentive uh tend to need quite complex and acute support rather than being being hit with a sanction the reason why that has only caused i can't believe i'd say only caused misery at the margin but the reason why that has not caused widespread misery is because we have had uh, a very well-functioning jobs market for most of the last decade. It doesn't seem likely to me that we are going to have a well-functioning jobs market um, as we come out of this pandemic or immediately afterwards, because some of the changes in economic behaviour will be permanent, as will some of the ways that workplaces arrange themselves. So I think there will be a higher... So in addition to my kind of pre-existing philosophical objection to it, and because the type of person who doesn't who doesn't just go, well, of course, I'm going to look for work and therefore doesn't get hit with sanctions, they're already the kind of person who's more vulnerable to homelessness anyway. My added concern is that we're about to be entering a, a situation in which um, 
people are on universal credit for longer simply because we have a worse job market for a jobs market for a bit. Uh, and so you kind of add the pre-existing problems to a kind of um, additional Kafkaesque cruelty. I think universal credit has shown that it works pretty well if you are a young person without dependence in a strong job mark, jobs market. I think it is broadly a benefit which can work well in a depressed jobs market, but not if it retains um, these very painful sanctions that are primarily uh, about the ways that a treasury project of reducing the benefits bill uh, intersected with the, the CSJ's, I think, much more worthwhile project about the, the future of welfare. I, w- I would actually, although I would I would say to that, um, there were some strategic parts of the the CSJs of what Indians was trying to achieve with universal credit, which was to create strong incentives for people to go and, and look for work, and and both in a carrot sense by saying that we're not going to you're not going to immediately use your welfare if you get a job, it'll it'll start um, taper tapering out or the, so there's no cliff edges, and, and I think that's been a, a huge success of universal credit as a system is that it, although there was a, broadly speaking, a job, a, a strong jobs market, there was also a system that meant that if people did start working part-time, they, even at a low income, it was still worthwhile compared to staying on welfare. So it, it provided more supply in terms of labor. Um, I, I, I do share your um, liberal objections to controlled, excessively controlled welfare. I also feel kind of, uh, there's a lot of trials about this in Australia at the moment, particularly involving some quite challenged Indigenous communities where people, rather than be given welfare cash, are given welfare on a, on a credit card that means they can only spend it in limited ways, kind of in a similar way to the food stamps programs in the US. But the issue with trying to say you can only spend your welfare in a similar one way is, A, people can buy those things and buy soft drinks and then resell them and you can easily use the money a different way, but it also just shows a general condensation that you don't think people are best placed to know how to spend the money giving them and it's quite an illiberal instinct. Um, perhaps so with the, these welfare sanctions, though, I, I don't want to feel like we should paint too negative picture in the sense that they are not supposed to be given out simply because somebody couldn't find a job. Uh, they're supposed to be given out if someone stopped looking in the sense that they, let's say, weren't submitting applications or they weren't showing up for, for job centre meetings. I think they're supposed to be a little bit more selective in their use. So I'm kind of similar to the idea that if you want to create a welfare system in which you go into a job center because you want people. And in fact, when you get onto universal credit, you're supposed to sign up a commitment to say that you're going to look for a job and you, it's the whole point of the system is, is rather than, uh, and this is exactly what Ian Duncan Smith was, was thinking about with the CSJ work is you're creating a system that encourages people into work because not only does work provide you an income, but also sense and purpose and, and meaning and belonging in, in your life. And that you don't just want to leave people on welfare for extended periods of time that you want to create those, those strong incentives. I'm, I'm willing to accept, though that that might be they might be overused and and potentially quite dangerous um i'm not sure if they should be abolished entirely but i I think it's something that that's quite a difficult point uh to to deal with if you want to create a system that's sort of fair and reasonable the the carrot and the stick metaphor i think is is really apt here Uh, i would just opt on the side of the carrot in terms of what's most effective if you look at the, the very good aspects of recent welfare reform relating to taper rates, relating to always making sure that you're earning more by working more hours, etc. That's the carrot. And I think that works. The reason, and I share this with Stephen, that I'm sceptical that the stick works in terms of sanctions is because most people uh, who claim 
benefit payments and, and welfare payments are already in a pretty, you know, pretty dire situation. Almost everyone uh, would prefer to be in a job anyway, uh, or would prefer to, you know, to be earning more income. And my worry is that uh, there's actually a, a parallel that I see here with drug policy, where people will say, oh, you know, if you decriminalize a certain substance, then more people will use it. Well, people don't start using uh, people don't start using heroin because suddenly uh, they're not going to be penalized for it. They start using it because they're in a really bad situation. Uh, oftentimes they might be struggling with various different issues uh, and they're, they're not going to be affected by a kind of a legal penalty or a, a penalty of some sort to stop them from using it. And th- the same thing is true when it comes to welfare in the majority of the cases. Most people, I don't think, are going to be affected by benefit sanctions as an incentive in the same way because nobody wants to be in a situation where you don't have a job. Very, very few people do at least. Well, on that note, I think we're running out of time. So I wanted to thank you very much, Daniel. Thank you very much, Stephen, for taking in The Pin Factory, the new podcast from the Asmith Institute.